are going to remember where you were right now for the rest of your life. How can you not be romantic about baseball? You're listening to On the Mound with Max Tanzer, Matt Salsler, and Tommy Muma on BIC Radio. Hello and welcome to On the Mound, a show covering all things baseball. I'm Matt Sosler and I'm joined by my two co-hosts from Seattle, Washington, Max Tanzer, and from Utica, New York, Tommy Muma. We have a lot to cover today, including the Mookie Betts saga, the Astros situation, an NL East preview, and as always, our top three. But for now, let's get started with our leadoff topic, our transaction roundup. Now, the Giants have signed former big leaguer Hunter Pence to a minor league contract. Max, what can you tell us about that? I absolutely love it, Hunter Pence going back to well, – I mean, when you think of Hunter Pence, you think of the San Francisco Giants winning the World Series with them in 2012 and 14. I don't believe he was on the 2010 team. Uh, and then he had a great year with the Rangers last year, made it to the All-Star game as a starter, as a designated hitter, eventually, or unfortunately could not play in that game due to injuries, but had a very big bounce-back season with the Texas Rangers. Now he's going back to San Francisco where the fans love him, and he's one of the best guys in the game, so I'm happy he's staying in the league. Yeah, I agree. I mean, um, Hunter Pence, great player, obviously. A lot of pop, uh, 242 career home runs, and he averages about 23 home runs a season. So that's definitely a good pickup for the Giants. And like Max said, when you think of Hunter Pence, you think of the Giants. Um, I know the fan base will be very happy about that to have one of their fan favorites back in a Giants uniform. Yeah, I mean, like, let's take a look at the jump from 2018 to 2019. In 18, 97 games at 226 OPS, just 590. In 2019, while he was hurt, the first half of the season was fantastic for him. In 83 games, 18 homers, 59 RPIs. The OPS jumped what seems like almost 350 points from 590 to 910. Uh, So he had an absolutely fantastic year. If he could stay healthy, his age 37 season should be a good one. Yeah, and you mentioned the age. How do you guys think that the age factor will affect his season? He was very, very good back in 2012. That would be his high 20s, low 30s. Do you think that he's showing any sign of slowing down, especially moving back to the National League where he will have to be an everyday fielder? No, you bring up a great point. I mean, taking a look at last season, the outfield, he only played 23 of his 83 games or so in the outfield for a good 192 innings. Uh, So, yeah, that may be an issue. Obviously, he's not going to be as fast. He won't be able to cover as much ground as he could back, you know, 10 years ago or so. Uh, But we'll see. I mean, this is a Giants team that I wouldn't say is going to push for that wild card spot this season. So it's an opportunity for him to stay in the league, be in a fami- be in familiar territory, and for him to maybe try and reinvent himself. Maybe they could swap him at the deadline to a team, an American League team that needs a DH or a good right-handed hitter off the bench. We'll see how that plays out. But either way, I mean, for him, I think it's good for the Giants to bring him back. It's going to bring fans into the stadium. They're going to love it. And for him, it keeps him in the league. And this is a guy you know, you've got to love. We talked about Curtis Granderson retiring last week. Hunter Pence is on the same level as in terms of morale and what he brings to the clubhouse. So, I mean, for the Giants, this this is a fantastic move. Yeah, I'm also looking at this Giants outfield. It's pretty young with Yastrzemski, Duger, and Dickerson. Do you guys think that Pence will serve more of a mentor, a mentor role, sort of as David Ross was with the Cubs and stuff like that? How do you think that that was the motive for the Giants? Um, I definitely think that's a motive, especially after um, manager Bruce Bochy has left the team. He can kind of carry over 
that culture that Bochi brought to the Giants um, in his time there. So I definitely think that was part of it because they have uh, some new members of the coaching staff, and they're bringing back a guy that they know um, knows how to play Giants baseball. Now, moving on, the Texas Rangers have signed Greg Bird to a minor league deal. Tommy, you are very familiar with the former Yankee first baseman. What can you tell us about this one? Um, I think it's a good pickup for the Rangers. Um, I was surprised that it took so long. Well, not surprised because obviously he wasn't playing that well. But he, you know, he's a left-handed hitter with a lot of pop, a lot of potential there that obviously never panned out for the Yankees, unfortunately. But um, definitely um, a lot of upside on this move. Sign him to a minor league deal, so it's pretty low risk. Um, But we've definitely seen flashes of it. Everybody used to joke about um, how good Greg Bird's spring trainings were, and then he would get to the regular season, kind of fall off. But he was plagued by injuries, so I think that if he can stay healthy, um, he'll definitely have a big impact for the Rangers in 2020. Yeah, and I think for the Rangers, it's such a great move because it's cheap. It can only go well for them. If he doesn't work out, it's just a minor league deal. They don't have to worry about it. Or they could get you know a, a blossoming guy who could live up to these, ex- these expectations that Tommy was talking about. Uh, currently, they have Guzman starting at first base, most likely on opening day. Uh, so there is a spot for him because uh, Danny Santana, he could play all around the field. There's a chance he may be even starting in the outfield this season. That could open up a spot potentially for a backup first baseman. Todd Frazier, I'm sure, could fill in as a backup first baseman as well. But I think Greg Bird has a legitimate chance of making the big league team out of spring training, and if not, be an impact player in the middle of the season, or at least a September call-up if he's still in organization. Yeah, and also, I'm not even looking at the field right now. I'm looking at the DH with uh, Sinshu Chu, and I wouldn't be surprised if they would play him in the outfield in order to get Bird some reps, especially if he starts out hot in spring training and can carry that in to the first couple months of the regular season. What are we thinking, Tommy? I mean, you said he had good spring trainings at 750, maybe 7-8 bombs. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) That would be something, but... Yeah, um, I forget what the exact numbers were in spring training. He, um, I think there was one year he had like 14 home runs in spring training, which was 14. wild. 14? It was wild. Like, he, he had like three or four multi-home run games. Oh, my goodness, yeah. Okay, well, you got to hope. You got to hope for the guy. A guy who's had this opportunity with the Yankees, and they brought in Voight and so forth, Ford, yeah. and he hasn't been able to get that spot. Yeah. Yeah, now moving on to the elephant in the room. As of this moment in time, the Boston Red Sox have sent Mookie Betts, David Price, to the L.A. Dodgers. In return, they get Alex Verdugo and Gratterall. The Minnesota Twins would get Kenta Maeda as a part of that deal. There's also a deal that is dependent on that trade as well, with Regnifo going across to Anaheim and Stripling and Jack Peterson going to Anaheim as well. Excuse me, Regnifo going to the Dodgers. Stripling and Peterson going to the Dodgers. What can you guys make of this deal? Well, the first thing is, is that it's not official yet. It, uh, earlier this week, Twitter was going crazy. I got to tell you, I mean, I was loving that. I mean, I was doing my homework, and then all of a sudden, Matt calls me, and he says that Jeff Passens reported that Mookie Betts has been traded. We put everything aside, and we're just dedicating the entire night to Twitter. And it was crazy. We were refreshing, refreshing, refreshing. We learned there was a third team. One point, it was the Angels. One point, it was the Twins. And then, obviously, it Eventually, inevitably, it was both the Angels and the Twins somehow involved. But the big, the big drama here is that this may not be official. 
I mean, right now the Red Sox are pulling back, saying they want a top 10 prospect from the Twins, and the Twins are very hesitant right now because with Gratterall, I guess they were expecting a starting pit, him to be a starting pitcher, but he, I guess, projects more as a reliever. And this causes a lot of drama. The Players Union was saying that they think this is very irresponsible. They want them to make the decision quicker and get this trade uh, you know, confirmed because think about it. This was a blockbuster trade during the NBA trade deadline, yet this was one of the big headliners right here. And if this doesn't go through, you're, you're destroying two markets right here because you have Los Angeles with the Dodgers and Boston with the Red Sox. This is crazy, and I, I'd hope it goes through for the good of the MLB, but we'll see. I agree. I hope it goes through as a Yankee fan, obviously. like to see uh, Mookie out of the division. But it's very interesting how, um, obviously, they're kind of backtracking here. But I do think it'll get done. Um, I think Bloom will definitely want to get it done. Is, you know, he's got to clear some cap space uh, for his club, who really doesn't have a shot at the division at this point. Um, but you never know. Obviously, if Mookie was to stay, that lineup um, is incredibly talented with uh, Mookie uh, and J.D. Martinez and Rafael Devers. So an interesting situation that the Red Sox are in is when you look at the offense, you got what multiple MVP candidates last year in Devers, Bogarts, you got Ben Attendee and left, Betts, as I said, if he does end up staying somehow. It's a good team on paper, but it is the bullpen, and it is the fact that they're in a situation where they can't get better. They don't have a farm system to trade and get bullpen players, and they don't have the money to go out in free agency and sign any players. So Heim Bloom's making the right decision here. If you think about it, you look at it in the way that if the Red Sox were to keep Mookie Betts and then offer him the qualifying offer, and he if he rejects it, you're getting, what, a fourth, fifth-round pick right there in terms of value. So they're getting the highest value by trading him right here, even if it is for Verdugo and so forth. That may not be exactly what you want, but it's the peak value you could get because it's more valuable than that draft pick from the qualifying offer. Yeah, and speaking of value and stuff like and that. And shedding money. But. Yeah, speaking of value, stuff like that, and they need to get rid of money. I'm also looking at this depth chart right now. And Betts is still on there. If you were to take him out of that depth chart, the Red Sox would really have no other choice but to move J.D. Martinez into right field. They could put Verdugo there as well and keep Martinez at the DH. I'd imagine Verdugo would just flip with Betts, but yeah. But right now you're still looking at a very, very complicated situation in Boston. And also what we're looking at here is there's also a rebound trade between both L.A. teams, the Angels and the Dodgers with Regnifo, Stripling, and Peterson. On paper, this trade is independent. It's a completely independent transaction. But they did say that if the bets deal were to fall through in some way, that they would for some reason and somehow cancel this trade. How do you think that this trade will be altered based on how this bets trade goes? Well, I think I think it goes hand-in-hand hand with the Betts trade, and I don't think the Dodgers are quite comfortable making this trade if they're not getting Mookie Betts. And here's the big thing. I, I love this for the Los Angeles Angels. This entire offseason, it's been Anthony Rendon, Anthony Rendon, Anthony Rendon, which is great. Don't get me wrong. But that's not the Angels' problem. They've had Mike Trout, Justin Upton, Alderton Simmons, and a great offense the last few years. It's been the pitching, lack of depth in the starting rotation and in the bullpen. You add Ross Stripling to that mix. Jock Peterson fills the void in right field for losing Cole Calhoun. I think this is a great move for the Angels, and really, it hurts the Angels more if the Red Sox don't make this trade. So they're really rooting for Heim Bloom to pull this one off. Well, also, if Heim Bloom pulls that trade off, then it also makes the American League a lot easier. You're losing a former MVP in that league who will come to the National League, and therefore you don't have to compete against him. Also, as you mentioned, with this Angels outfield and this Angels team in general, if this trade goes through, 
you have an outfield now of Upton, Trout, and Peterson left to right. That's an, a vast improvement of last year. You also have Shohei Otani, who can play both ways. Tommy Lasella matting the middle infield. Albert Pujols, not to mention that. Jason Castro behind the plate. And their best free agent signing in quite a while, Anthony Rendon. And I personally think that this kind of offseason mimics very similar to what Joe Madden did right before the 2015 season. It's obviously not as big with big-time players like John Lester, but I think on a smaller scale, and considering the talent they already have with Mike Trout and with Justin Upton and Otani, I think the Angels could be making this move in order to possibly make a push in a very uncertain American League West next oh, year. No doubt. I think I think that's been their move the entire time. They've always been that team that's in the middle where they say they're going to be pushing for a playoff spot and have never been able to make it. And it has been, as I said earlier, because of the lack of pitching. But as you said, they also have Joe Adele coming up, one of their top prospects. He he probably won't be on the opening day roster, but in the middle of the season he could play or contribute a little bit as well as next season as well but take a look at this rotation as you said is if Otani comes back healthy and looks like 2017 Shohei Otani rookie of the year Shohei Otani this could be very special excuse me 2018 Shohei Otani you got Otani and Heaney along with Stripling if this trade goes through and then Tehran and Bundy that's a much better rotation it may not be the Nationals rotation it may not be the Mets rotation but it's enough to support what should be a very dominant offense in the American League West I agree. Um, definitely like what the Angels are doing this off season, and I think when you have a player like Mike Trout, obviously the best in the game, you always have a chance. Um, he can make a lot of things happen. But you mentioned all the guys that they're putting around him, and they've been saying for years how Mike Trout he doesn't have anybody around him. Now he does. Um, maybe not quite what they need to. Uh, make a run at it this season, but they're definitely getting back there. Um, Anthony Rendon obviously won the World Series last year with Washington, so you have a veteran there uh, with plenty of winning experience. Um, Andrelton Sims at short um, can make a lot of things happen, flashing the leather over there. And that outfield, if the Jack Pearson trade goes through, very impressive um, outfield. And it might be, well, I don't know, what do you guys think? With Houston, they probably have one of the better outfields in the AL West, but they definitely, if the trade goes through, the Angels are definitely up there. No, yeah, for sure, and I, I think I think that the A's and the Astros are still better. I think both of them have more depth in their pitching. That's what's going to carry them. Because, look, I think over a 162-game season, you can have a great offense and so forth, but you have to have the pitching. Pitchers get hurt a lot. You have to have guys be able to swap in, in and out. Right now they have Robles closing, uh, and that's really it. I mean, Noe Ramirez, Bonnery was pretty solid last year for them towards the end of the season. But at the end of the day, they still need a couple of bullpen pieces to carry them. And if they do make the playoffs, you know, their their rotation and their bullpen is not enough to carry them through. I'd say, I know I'm getting, I know we are not doing the American League West yet this week, but for preview, I'd say at best third place for the Angels. I still think the A's and the Astros are better than them. Yeah, and as you mentioned with the Angels, let's now transition to one of the other American League teams, a part of this whole mess, I should say, as we can call it right now. Minnesota Twins, they get starter Kenta Maeda, who was pretty solid for the Dodgers over his tenure there. They also send Gratterall, who is really the piece that is sort of sending this all into chaos with his health issues. Where do you see the Twins coming out in this deal as of now? 
Well, I think either them or the Dodgers are going to have to keep the Red Sox a top-ten prospect, and we know that the Twins don't want to do it, but if they want to make this work, and this is a very important trade for them too. Now, obviously, they're only getting Kenta Maeda in this deal, but he is imperative to their success. Again, starting pitching depth. I know it's a broken record at this point, but the Twins as well. Barrios and Ordorizzi were very good for them last year, both All-Stars. And besides that, you got Homer Bailey, Rich Hill, and Randy Dobnak. Dobnak, just a cup of coffee in the big leagues last year, was solid, was very good, got hammered by the Yankees in the division series. But besides that, Rich Hill is coming off a big injury, and he's only getting older. Homer Bailey had some good uh, innings with the A's last year as well. But then again, it's a wild card. So adding Kenta Maeda as your number three starter really solidifies that rotation. And what should be a very solid pen with Rodgers, uh, Trevor May as well, Duffy, Romo, Clippard, and Dyson if he comes back healthy as well. Oh, no, actually, Dyson's not on the team anymore. But, uh, yeah, I, I think if they need this trade to work out. And a top prospect may be a lot for just Kenta Maeda, but this may be the difference between them making it past the DS and maybe going back home early in September or October, excuse me. And do you see now, because of the fact that you just mentioned that it is just Kenta Maeda, do you see the Twins getting more talent in this deal because of the idea that Gratterall is not 100%? I'd be surprised just because I think the whole, this is all really holding on the fact that the Red Sox want more. So it'd be interesting to see if maybe the Dodgers threw something into the Red Sox and maybe the Twins threw in a smaller piece, and because of that they want more or something like that. But I doubt that happens. I'd say it's going to either be the Dodgers or the Twins giving in. I'd be curious to see if Bloom just would take up straight-up cash because that's a huge problem they're suffering right there with the luxury tax being way over the margin. And if I'm Bloom right here, the obvious motive to get rid of Mookie Betts was because they needed more money. And they were way over the tax threshold. So if, I, if I'm Heim Bloom right here, I might take some money. But it appears to be that he wants a prospect. So we'll see how this plays out. I agree. Um, I definitely think that that would be a smart move for the Red Sox. Um, obviously, their farm system is depleted as well. But um, And, you know, Heim Bloom, he's used to building his teams uh, without a lot of money. And it might be nice for him to get a le- little extra cash here um, to make a little more happen uh, for the Red Sox, but obviously he's very capable of uh, building a team with without a lot of money as he did with the Rays. You see where they are now um, as contenders in the alleys. I'm just curious to see how much of a role, I'd be curious to know how much of a role social media played a role into this. Because think about it, maybe he's hearing that Boston's extremely, incredibly upset with this trade right now. And maybe that makes him a little bit more concerned, and then he starts to look deeper into it. Then he figures out that Gratterall is more of a reliever, not a starter. And then maybe that's why, or maybe it's just the fact that he is on the same page as the Boston fans, which is more likely. But I'm just wondering, if we're not in the age of social media, does stuff like this happen? I, I don't know. Yeah, and also looking at that, you think about the age of social media, the night of the bets trade, as you mentioned, there were several misreports saying that there were other teams involved. We heard rumors about teams like the Rangers. We heard that the Angels were directly involved with this trade. And, you know, it just makes you think that how the league could be affected based on these predetermined and pre-reported deals. Now, speaking of deals that are directly impacted by this big trade, and a ripple effect, the Dodgers have extended Max Muncy three years, $26 million, in addition to Chris Taylor for two years, $13.4 million. How do you think this move was impacted by the Betts deal? 
I don't know how much it was impacted by the Vets deal, just because they are taking on more money from Price and Bets, so it's probably harder to extend someone. But I, I like this move a lot just because, I mean, let's take a look at the story of Max Muncy was DFA'd by the Oakland Athletics after the 2016 season, uh, or excuse me, 17th season, and then Dodgers pick him up and has a really big breakout 2018 season, a member of the Home Run Derby, arguably could have been on the All-Star team, OPS 973, year after that adds on to it, an All-Star appearance, 35 homers, 98 RBIs, OPS 889. And I love this deal. Three three years, $26 million is cheap for a guy with that production. He could play all over the field, first base, second base, third base, whatever you need. It's a good fit. I like it a lot. Yeah, and you mentioned the ability to play all over the field for not only Muncie, but extending Taylor as well. Obviously, if this bet deal goes through, Taylor's time on the field should significantly decrease. But I personally think that the Dodgers making these two moves, as you mentioned, is ingenious. They really extend two utility guys who can play anywhere, as you mentioned, especially Taylor, who can play, I think, probably seven out of the nine positions on the field he has at one point or another. Also, both their bats are absolutely phenomenal, especially in the postseason. Both players have played extremely clutch in the postseason. Yeah, and I mean, look, I mean, the one guy we forgot to mention here is Kike Hernandez, too, who could play all over the field. So they have so much to work with right there. And what they're allowed to do is what I think the Yankees have the luxury of, too, is you don't necessarily have to bench guys, but if one guy's tired, you just switch everyone around and you could give you know your A guy a day off. Or, like, for example, if Corey Seager needs a day off, you just slide in Kike at short. You could put in... Taylor at short. I'm sure Max Muncy could eventually be capable of playing shortstop as well. Uh, so it's a huge luxury to have three guys who could play both the outfield and the infield for you. And they got Taylor at a rel- relatively cheap price. I believe it burned some arbitration years as well. Uh, it makes sense. Andrew Friedman with a couple of good signings this weekend, along with what could be some big trades. Yeah, and now we could talk all day about this entire saga between the Dodgers, Red, Sh- Red Sox, Angels, and Twins. But something big happened last night. Astros manager, or former Astros manager, A.J. Hinch, sat down with Tom Verducci on MLB Network, gave a brief interview about the eventful events over the past couple years. What did you guys take away from that interview? Um, I thought it was pretty insightful as to what's been (laughs) happening with Houston. Um, Obviously, in those types of interviews, you don't get as much as you're hoping for as a fan. Um, But... Um, We were watching the interview together, and we all kind of felt bad for A.J. Hinch because you could tell that he truly uh, felt sorry for what happened, that he didn't do more. Um, But MLB Network, um, I forget who it was, but they brought up an interesting point about um, him smashing the monitors twice that um, that shows a lack of respect from his players uh, because I know if I was playing for A.J. Hinch and he was showing uh, that much disapproval, I definitely would stop, but obviously he should have said something, uh, say it more explicitly. And the report also mentioned that um, the players say that they would have stopped if he had said explicitly. I don't know if I buy that. Um, what do you uh, think, I think Matt? that's a straight-up lie. I mean, you were going to say something, Matt? Well, you continue with that, but I think that you mentioned, Tommy, how you feel super bad for A.J. Hinch, and I feel bad for him for all that happened, but on the other hand, another thing that I took away from that interview is the thing that also makes you feel even worse for him 
is that he refused to throw any of his players under the bus. He took 100% of the blame, as you said, blamed it on him the fact that his players could not pick up a simple message like smashing a monitor with a bat. Also, the idea of how the players have responded to the media after the whole investigation came out, to mention Bregman, just to name one on how he sort of made it a and no big deal situation. And I think that's really big for A.J. Hinch. I think we could easily see him serve a suspension. I don't think he'll be managing in the near future, but I wouldn't be surprised to see him in an organization after the season ends. Yeah, for me it was very hard. I was very torn between two sides when I was watching this because watching it just as a fan, I felt bad for him. I truly did because, as you said, he's taking the blame for his players. We saw how how they acted with the media during their fan fest, and that just makes you, honestly, it makes it harder to feel bad for the Astros players when they're just rejecting it and refusing to apologize, it seems like. But for A.J. Hinch's case, you got to feel bad because he's going up there, he's telling the truth, he's answering every single question at an extremely difficult time while he's banned from the game that he spent his whole life in, basically. And the fact that, you know, I mean, he took the blame for his players, but at the same time, the other part of me saying... He should have said something. Just because you bang a TV, that doesn't mean you've done your justice. you got to go further. you got to tell them. you got to make it stop. And it's hard. I mean, think about it. If you're the Houston Astros in that situation, you're the best team in the MLB, you're riding it hot. Even if you're in the postseason now and all of a sudden you have your manager come up and say, hey, stop it. We're not doing this anymore. That kills the vibe. It does. It's hard for a manager to come in and walk in to his 25-man roster who's just riding and loving it right now because it's going to take away all your momentum. But at the same time, he's the manager. He's the one that takes responsibility for it. He has to go in and make a stop for it, and he didn't, and he does deserve a suspension. So that's why I don't feel bad about that part. But I do feel bad about the part that he does have to take all the blame for something that allegedly it appears to be what his players really did, and he didn't really have too much involvement in. Yeah, and you mentioned how he should have gone further and should have said something there. I think, honestly, especially later as the season went on, one thing, if you're in a manager's hat, what you what I would be concerned about personally is if I took it beyond a subtle cue like smashing a monitor, which isn't so subtle, I would be concerned about losing the trust of my players because... That's a huge that, Especially in the postseason... Because you, it's, it's almost impossible yeah. to tell your players like when the postseason starts, all right, you guys have been succeeding doing this thing the whole year. Now we're going to stop in the playoffs. So that's impossible. He had to stop it early so that, you know, because, look, when you're doing this for 60 games and you've won 35, 40 of those games, it's hard to tell your players to stop after they've been succeeding. But he was late. To it, And he said that his leadership had gotten better from 2017 to 19. But who cares? Honestly, you're a Major League Baseball manager. This is an imperative situation. You have to put an end to it. And that's why I don't feel bad for him in that aspect. I just feel bad that he had to take all of the heat for his players on national TV. And yet they refuse to say anything, it seems like. I agree. But one thing I want to touch on is that he's been talking about how his leadership has improved, right? One thing that I know that Twitter... Um, jumped on was that he didn't deny the buzzer allegations. Yes, oh yes. Even as a leader, but I don't know. The buzzer allegations are so, like, you know, they're very severe allegations. And if you truly weren't doing this, why wouldn't you come out and say, absolutely not, that's ridiculous. He didn't say that. He said that he believes the report of the commissioner. 
And what do you mean? He said he knew where the begging was go when the begging was going on. Yeah. How do you not know where the buzzers are going? Like, come on now, like. He would know. I mean, he's the manager of the team. If your guys have buzzers on, you see that in the locker room. And if he truly room. believed that they didn't do it, he would say we did not do it. He would not say, I believe the report. Like, that's right. It's frustrating. Well, that's another thing as well. The buzzers are on a whole other level. But you mentioned his leadership ability. And ever since the 2017 season, the Astros have been in a nosedive, especially you know, even though they made it to the World Series in 2019 and we're in a Game 7, 2018 didn't even make it to the World Series. Do you think that A.J. Hinch can manage without cheating? Yes, I do. He has the experience at the big league level. I don't know if it will be to the extent that he goes to two World Series in three years and an ALCS in one. But but something that came out that's very interesting about Jeff Loonhow is the fact that a Wall Street Journal article, I believe they read the letter that Manfred sent to the Astros, and it talked about how the Astros were using these dark arts and uh, in turn introduced this software or this program that decoded the signs, a code breaker is what they called it, and that Loonhow basically said to the media that he had no idea what was going on, but apparently to this intern, the intern told Loonhow all of the information. He would come into the clubhouse, or excuse me, the locker room, and would look into them and say, are you code-breaking right now? And would be super in on it, which is very sketchy to me, and it's a shame that Loonhow, you know, is trying... I mean, obviously he's lying. Anyone would probably lie in this situation, but, he, you know, people are starting to get exposed here. Yeah, and you mentioned people getting exposed. I think, I hate to cut off this great conversation, but... We're going to take a quick break on the other side. It is Oscar weekend, so we figured that we'd take a look. There are several awesome baseball movies out there, so we're going to take a look at our personal favorites on the top three coming up right here on the mound. Welcome back to On the Mound. As I mentioned earlier, Oscar Sunday is tomorrow, so we figured for our top three today, we'd run through each of our top three baseball movies. Max, there are a lot of phenomenal baseball movies. What's your number three? My number three. My number three is going to be The Rookie. I think this is a classic. This is something I've been watching since before I watched, started loving baseball. Uh, I love, like, the father-son component of it, too. I watch it with my dad all the time. It's such a feel-good movie as well, and it's based on a true story, too. So got to go with that for my number three. My number three has to be The Sandlot, um, another classic. I think everybody loves that movie, whether you're a baseball fan or not. Um Brings back memories from times used to play in the summer, so definitely love that movie. Yeah, both of those awesome choices. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to pick a different one for my number three. From Chicago, I got to go with Rookie of the Year, Henry Rongardner, Brigma, the dynamic duo that never fails, a kid pitching in the big leagues, that whole entire plot line. It's just so funny. It's so It's hysterical, quite frankly, and it's just an awesome story. You have... Everything going on off the field, everything going on on the field. And it's just a complete baseball story that sort of, it's a funny baseball story that you just can't get in any other baseball movie, I think. And if they tried to remake it, it would just fail. It's one of those things, honestly, it's pretty a cheesy movie. But, like, I don't know, there's some charm to it for some reason that's just enjoyable about it. So I like that one. I don't think it's in my top five even, but it's a good one. It's a good one. Uh, for my number two, got to go with Field of Dreams, excuse me. Absolutely phenomenal movie. Uh, the scenery is great. The story is great. I love the idea just about bringing old players back. Again, another father and son component to it. So that, that's, re that's really awesome. Uh, you got James Earl Jones in it as well, who's fantastic. Uh, and again, I mean, 
when you think of baseball, you think of the field of dreams. And I can't wait to see the game that White Sox and Yankees are playing in Iowa this summer. So that, that'll be really fun, too. But, yeah, that's my number two. Field of dreams is my number two as well. Um, and same with Max. Um, can't wait for that game on August 13th in Iowa, Yankees, White Sox. Um, but when you think, I mean, I don't know. It was tough for me to put Field of Dreams at number two over number one. But, um, you know, one of the best baseball movies of all time, obviously. Um, great family movie. Definitely love Field of Dreams. Yeah, I'm going to go with a more recent film with the Oakland A's Moneyball. Now, this was a toss-up between this and my number one Moneyball I think it's a little bit different because it shows the side from the front office's perspective. Not necessarily a fictitious story about players. It's a feel-good story. I mean, this is a true feel-good story. But for a real baseball fan, it truly shows how Billy Bean completely reinvented how GMs approach their payroll and approach their style of managing in terms of the payroll, in terms of player development, in terms of the analytics in general. And I think, honestly, I think that movie even accelerated the path that current executives and managers use today. Yeah, that's my number one, and I'm absolutely in love with this movie. As It was very interesting because it introduced the Moneyball idea, sabermetrics and so forth, and just how the game is changing and bringing in new philosophies. Bill James's philosophies were used a lot in that one. And the book's been out for a while, I think. But, uh, you know, the movie coming out really expanded it to the fans and i think it's something that many fans didn't know about and got to learn about right before really analytics and sabermetrics started to be the big thing in major league baseball but the other thing i really like about this one is that it feels a lot like a documentary but it has that hollywood movie flair to it and it's super fun you obviously got brad pitt and jonah hill it's probably the only time i've seen jonah hill in a serious role and i think he's the best best character in this movie, Peter Brand, who plays Paul De Podesta. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic. The beginning, the prologue is amazing, too. I get chills every single time. They do an absolutely fantastic job. I could watch this movie over and over again. I mean, how could you not be romantic about baseball, man, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's right. And uh, I love Moneyball, but for number one, I'm going to go with Major League because I'm a big comedy guy, and <laughs> it's uh, it's just hilarious. You have Charlie Sheen. Um, Bob Euchre, the broadcaster for the Indians in that movie, um, he's hilarious as well. I mean, he's funny in real life. Have you guys heard his uh, Hall of Fame speech? I have not. Oh, you have to watch it. It's so funny. But, um, no, he is hilarious, yeah. But Major League follows the Cleveland Indians, and, uh, you know, you're rooting for the Indians. Even when they beat the Yankees, um, they do a great job with that. Um, I think you're the only one that was sad when they beat the Yankees, but yeah, I was a little sad, but (laughs) no, yeah, (laughs) it's fictional. That's right. That's the only way the Yankees can lose. Yeah, well, you knew it was fictional because the the Yankees had like beards and mustaches. The only way the Yankees lose is from trash cans being banged, buzzers, and in movies. That's right. Yeah, it's hard to top that, but for my number one, we mentioned it earlier. I gotta go with Field of Dreams, being from the Midwest. That's just a classic story because also it really tells the history of the time as well. You have the Volkswagen, that micro bus in the movie. It really shows how Kevin Costner, James Earl Jones, all those relationships. And it just shows, from a moral standpoint, it shows that you got to believe no matter what, that things are going to be okay. 
that it, that all your decisions are worthwhile. And it's really, I think it's a morale booster combined with the game that we know and love that is baseball. Oh, yeah. And I mean, baseball and movies, too, is just crazy. I was just talking to both of you guys last night about how I wish there were more modern movies. And there's a couple, Trouble with the Curve, uh, Million Dollar Arm that we talked about. I would love to see some more new modern baseball movies and obviously as i said you can't take the cheesy comedy of rookie of the year or little big league or major league or whatever it may be and try to do that today it just will not succeed but if you you know they can make more dramas about moneyball we said you know they can make an astro scandal movie that's very similar to moneyball they could do a lot they could do one on peds or something like that there's so much they could work with and i i would be such a huge fan because it it really does display how beautiful baseball is baseball's one of those sports if you don't understand what's happening of course you're going to think it's boring but once you dissect it and dissect it excuse me and understand what's going on it makes it just so much better and that's what these movies allow you to do so i'm a big fan yeah going off of that you mentioned the dissection another thing that the movies allow us to do especially the fictional ones like field of dreams rookie of the year major league is the directors trying to show us the underlying elements of the great game of baseball which is the element of friendship friendship honesty all those intangible values are all intended and moral and very evident in all those movies. That's going to wrap it up for our movie discussion. We're going to take a quick break, and coming up, we're going to do our first divisional preview. We're going to start right here with the NL East. We will be right back. Bring back some high school memories and nostalgia with a variety of music genres, including pop punk, grunge, punk rock, and more on Teen Angst Radio with me, DJ Teddy B. And me, DJ Dilemma. We take a look at what's going on in the teen angst music scene today, head back in time and jam out to some retro teen angst jams, and see where your favorite bands are now. Tune in to Teen Angst Radio, Wednesdays from 8 to 10 p.m. right here on VIC Radio. The voice of angsty teens. Bring back some high school memories and nostalgia with a variety of music genres, including pop punk, grunge, punk rock, and more on Teen Angst Radio with me, DJ Teddy B. And me, DJ Dilemma. We take a look at what's going on in the teen angst music scene today, head back in time and jam out to some retro teen angst jams, and see where your favorite bands are now. Tune in to Teen Angst Radio, Wednesdays from 8 to 10 p.m. right here on VIC Radio. The voice of angsty teens. Welcome back to On The Mound. Now, we mentioned earlier... We're going to start off with our divisional previews. We're going to start with the NL East. I personally think this is our hardest division to predict. There is really no obvious winner. I had an extremely difficult time. Unfortunately, there may be an obvious loser, a unanimous (laughs) last place team in this case. But we're not going to hesitate. We're going to run through all our picks, all our decisions, and our reasons why. So, Max, let's start with you. Let's start with the obvious decision. Who do you have finishing at the bottom, possibly having an eventful June with the first-year player draft in a year and a half? (laughs) Those those, those poor Miami Marlins, am I right? I mean, it's very sad. But you know what this does set up is the fact that the the four teams right now are competing— when the Marlins eventually do hit their stride and their you know their farm system starts to develop and they have players competing at the major league level and they create a competitive team, those teams at least 
at least half of those teams should be on the downfall trying to transition to where the Marlins are right now. So it's a good situation for them. What's the point of them trying to compete in a division that's landlocked right now? So, yeah, I don't mind it. But, yes, Marlins are in last place for me this year. I don't know what you're talking about. I have the Marlins win this thing. But, <laughs> um, but no, I mean, you're right. It's kind of sad there with the Marlins. And uh, I was watching an interview with Derek Jeter the other day, and he was talking about how the Marlins win, they dismantle the team. Um, that's been, you know, a common theme for them. And he obviously did that when he took over. But I think that the Marlins are going to have a better year this year than they did last year. They're bringing in some veteran players. They have Francisco Cervelli, um, Jonathan VR. Um, VR is a huge pickup, and that was. A very interesting move, taking a little bit of a tangent with the Orioles. They decided to DFA him, I think it was. And this is a guy who's like a 3-4 war player, and they, I guess they just didn't want to pay him the money. And the Marlins were able to take advantage of that as he was a free agent, I believe, after that. And I think he's a good fit right there for them, a good leader and a guy who could put up some good numbers for them. Yeah, absolutely. And they have Matt Joyce, uh, Corey Dickerson, Uh, a former Yankee Garrett Cooper. So they have some uh, veterans that can definitely help lead this team. Um, Definitely a couple all-stars on that team. Uh, So I definitely like where the Marlins are compared to last year. But, yeah, I don't see them having a fantastic year. Yeah, I have to agree with both you guys. I have the Marlins finishing in dead last as well. Tommy, you mentioned their free agent signings, VR, Joyce, Dickerson, I'm seeing a lot of parallels to the White Sox in the early 2000s, the sort of idea that we're going to sign old veterans, hope that they do well, you know, maybe bring a couple fans to the stadium by signing them, gain some more popularity. But in reality, they're just doing that in order to solve for time, to rebuild their farm system, and as well to maybe hope that they get lightning in a bottle and maybe trade trade at the trade deadline for prospects to help accelerate this process. Yeah, I think this is a tactic that most GMs use when they're rebuilding a team. Again, as you said, bring fans to the stadium. If they do well, they could trade them at the deadline. But also good leadership skills, teaching the young guys how to play a 162-game season. That's a long season, and having guys who've done it for a long time and have been successful at it are very good. All right, I'm going to move on to my number four, or my fourth place team in the NL East this year, and for me, that is going to be the Philadelphia Phillies in a tough fourth place. I think they're going to be the fourth place, obviously, you think of a team that's below 500. I still think the Phillies will be a good team this year, but for me, it, it's the lack of the bullpen. They added Zach Wheeler this offseason to the rotation to what should be a good enough rotation, again, like the Angels, to support a very power-heavy offense for the Phillies, but... Hector Neris has been up and down the last few years or so. Uh, Sir Anthony Dominguez has some closing experience as well. But then again, all these guys I'm listing, Alvarez, Arano, Morgan, have not been able to prove that I think they could be a playoff bullpen. Uh, David Robertson, he has to come back. He was out basically the entire season last year, too. He has to have show that he can not only stay healthy, but be the guy that the White Sox and the Yankees saw back three, five years ago. I'm going to shake things up a little bit. Um, I have the Mets coming in at number okay. four. <laughs> Um, and I definitely like the Mets this year. I think that they will have a good team, and I do think that they can contend, but I don't know. It's just something about the Mets, right? It seems like they always have something that goes wrong, and, you know, I'm rooting for them, and they do obviously have a very, very good team. They have Pete Alonso, uh, Robinson Cano, uh, J.D. Davis, their rotation. The rotation's amazing. It yeah. is amazing. Uh, but I don't know. And see, 
when I have them in fourth, but I feel like it can be very close. Like they they lose out by five or six games because I just think that there's so many teams in this division um, that are very good. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Mets came in second or even won the division. But at the same time, I just feel like um, with the the problems they've had this offseason, you know, Carlos Beltran coming in, that won't affect things much because obviously he didn't, uh, you know, he never managed a game with them. But I don't know. They It seems like they'll get going. They have some injuries. Um, but I don't know. I have the Mets at four. Yeah, I'm going to have to be the tiebreaker here. And I'm going to go with the Philadelphia Phillies for my fourth place team. I look at this depth chart, and they're very solid left to right in the outfield. McCutcheon, Hazley, Harper. Jay Bruce, they're backing up. You really can't do anything better with that outfield. You know, left to right in the infield, Kingery, Gregorius, Segura, and Hoskins, as well as Real Muto behind the plate. The problem that I see is this rotation. Some people think that it's a phenomenal rotation. I have to disagree. I disagree, too. But it's fine. It, it's, but... You have Zach Wheeler, who's pos- who may be your opening day starter. If not, he's guaranteed to at least start in the opening series. In New York... He was facing teams fourth and fifth guys when he was starting behind Syndergaard, DeGrom, Mats, all those good pitchers, Stroman in the end. And you have Arietta, who was absolutely terrible last year with injuries. He really hasn't shown his true Chicago self anywhere else, including before he came to Chicago in Baltimore. Aaron Nola, he's okay. I mean, he's a good pitcher. He's a solid ace. But he compares nowhere to the other aces in the division, such as, such as the Scherzer-Strasburg tandem, the Cinder-Guard-DeGrom tandem. Also, the bullpen, nothing screams out at me. I think the offense does perfectly fine this year. But you can't win a baseball game without phenomenal pitching. And the Phillies, unfortunately, don't have that this year. I, I I agree with you on the bullpen part. With the rotation, I have to disagree a little bit. Just with the fact that Aaron Nola has... You know, he can be a dominant pitcher. He can be of the liking of Jacob deGrom, not for a 162-game season, but he has the stuff to do it. I think he's a good enough ace for a team to go to the postseason with Wheeler. I don't think starting in the two or being in the two-spot of the rotation will be that much of a jump for him. He's staying in the same division. He's very familiar with these teams. For me, when it really drops off is with Arietta, Eflin, and Velasquez. Uh, but then again, the Phillies have so much firepower in their offense that the rotation should be good. It should be fine, as we said with the Angels. It's really the bullpen. The fact that the Phillies have struggled so much the last few years to hold leads, and it doesn't matter how many runs your offensive offense scores, if your bullpen can't hold it for you, then you got a big issue there. And I think that's going to be the biggest kryptonite for these Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, number three for me is the Washington Nationals. This was very tough between the Nationals and my number two team. Uh, the Nationals coming off the World Series victory last year, and this one's very interesting to me. They lose Anthony Rendon, obviously. They lose Harper the year before, and they've shown that that should not be that big of a deal. They have Juan Soto coming back, Victor Robles, who should be getting even better as he continues to get older and more experienced at the big league level. Uh, Some under-the-radar moves, too, signing uh, Eric Thames and Starling Castro as well. So they'll be good. And again, very good rotation with Scherzer, Strasburg, and Corbin, along with Aaron Sanchez, or excuse me, Anibal Sanchez. And the bullpen is going to be the biggest thing for me. Sean Doolittle in the closing spot. He was very good last year. They're bringing back Hudson, Will Harris in the setup position as well, going from the Astros, from giving up that home run to Howie Kendrick to blow the World Series for the Astros to 
joining that team in the Washington Nationals. It really depends on the bullpen for me. We'll see. Yeah, for me at three, I have the Philadelphia Phillies, which you just talked about. Um, But, you know, I think bringing in Joe Girardi to manage this club was huge for them. Um, And I think back to the Yankees in uh, 2015-2016, a pretty similar team uh, to this one right here because the Yankees didn't have uh, great rotations for those teams. But they did have a good offense, which... It wasn't a great offense. Guys were coming up. You have some young players on this team, but I like the uh, the mix of veterans as well. Quite a few. You have uh, JT Realmuto behind the plate. He can do it all. Um, one of the best catchers in the game. Didi Gregorius at short. That was a huge signing for them this offseason. I think he'll do very well there in Philadelphia. Um, you know, It's not quite the short porch at Yankee Stadium, but he can definitely do some damage at Citizens Bank Park. Um, Reese Hoskins has proven himself, and the outfield is great. You have Andrew McCutcheon, uh, Bryce Harper, um, and you have Jay Bruce now. So I definitely like the Phillies, and I think that they're going to end up in third this year. Yeah, great minds think alike. And with number three, got to go with the Washington Nationals. Um, you look at the Nationals right now, and the one thing that made me put them in the three spot instead of the two spot or the one spot is they lost their cornerstone in Anthony Rendon. And I honestly think that the loss of Rendon will shake up their entire batting order. I know that they have Castro, as you mentioned, as well as Harris in the rotation. It's all in the hands of Juan Soto. Right? Exa- exactly. It's all in the hands of Juan Soto. And we saw Juan Soto when he was batting after Anthony Rendon or sometimes before Anthony Rendon. So I'm curious also how the uncertainty of Juan Soto plays out in this my, in my decision because you don't know how pitchers are going to approach Soto now that they don't have to be worried about Anthony Rendon. Also, I mean another thing is this rotation is absolutely phenomenal which made that which made me think that they're going to be in third instead of fourth. So, I think the rotation holds the boat afloat. I think the bats suffer a little bit. But also, this division's very good. We're looking at a very good Nationals team. I would not be surprised if they're in the wild card hunt come September. So, yeah, I mean, Nationals in third, but not by much in my opinion. All right, my number two is the New York Mets. Tommy, I'm sorry. I think the Mets are going to do a little bit better. And for me, again, it is the starting rotation. You could argue the best rotation in Major League Baseball. Uh, You're going to have DeGrom, Syndergaard, Stroman, uh, Porcello, then Mats, or Mats, then Porcello. And the bullpen was the biggest key for me comparing them to the Nationals because, look, they had a lot of struggles last season. But the, and adding Dylan Patances, if he could stay healthy, if we're in a perfect world here and he stays healthy for the whole season, and you add on Seth Lugo, who you could give a little bit of a break because you won't rely on. And then the biggest key is bouncing back with both Diaz and Familia. Both of those guys have good track records. I'd like to see Edwin Diaz bounce back. I think he will. Familia, we'll see. But I, I think the New York Mets are going to be a big force. I think they are finally finally going to figure things out and Luis Rojas, a guy that all the players seem to love in that organization knows what they want to do, knows what it's all about should work better with Van Wagenen than Callaway did, I'd say it's a big year for the Mets. You know, the more I think about putting the Mets at four the more I'm I, I don't know, I'm rethinking it because the rotation is great um, but I don't know, I'm not feeling it with the Mets, I, I wish them the best but so, for number two, I'm going with the defending world champion, uh, Washington Nationals. Um, and as you mentioned, this isn't a perfect team, obviously. Um, lost Anthony Rendon, which 
you know, obviously that's a huge loss for them. But I definitely think that they, they're not going to have as good of a year as they did last year, but they definitely have a lot of their key pieces. And somebody that they brought into the infield, uh, Starlin Castro, um, who can definitely make things happen on both sides of the ball, uh, only 29 years old. And I saw something interesting um, in the off season. It was like a comparison with Derek Jeter. Um, I think it was Derek Jeter, Jose Altuve, and Starlin Castro. And through um, age 29, they Starlin Castro has more hits than both of them. So obviously he's not going to completely make up for Anthony Rendon, but I definitely think that um, that he will help. Yeah, what I'm worried about with that is I saw Castro play a lot during his younger time as a Cub. And what concerns me is that, you know, he's an awesome hitter. When he makes contact, he's he was quite inconsistent during his time in Chicago. Now, I'm not saying that he's matured, but also another thing which might help to your advantage is that he's been off the radar playing in Miami, playing on the Yankees right after they traded him after acquiring Zobrist. So I'm curious how maybe he's using the Nationals as a new situation to sort of bounce back, and maybe this will be his breakout party in Washington, and I can see how that supports your argument. Max, do you have something to say? Yeah, yeah, with Sterling Castro, I think I think he's very underrated. I think I think going to Miami, he fell off the chart a little bit. Obviously, was the piece of the Stanton trade, uh, but he played 162 games last year, very durable. A guy who hit 270 last year, which is very respectable as well. I'd say that as time has gone on from the Cubs to the Marlins, he's matured a lot more. He's gotten to be a better player, more bat to ball skills. So yeah, yeah. Now moving on, I again we can continue talking for days and weeks on it, and. But my number two, New York Mets. I see a very complete team. The rotation, as Max already mentioned, with DeGrom, Syndergaard, Stroman, Porcello, Mats, and Waka even as some insurance there. You got Ramos behind the plate. Rookie of the year, Pete Alonso. Robinson Cano coming back possibly from an injury, and you know what he can do. Jeff McNeil can play literally anywhere. Ahmed Rosario, Jeff McNeil, J.D. Davis, Nimmo Marisnik now in addition from the Astros for defense, and Michael Conforto, who I think is going to have a lot better year than he did last year. You will be the centerpiece in that Mets organization, possibly from a leadership and all that standpoint. And also from the bullpen standpoint, I don't see how they can do any worse. Diaz and Familia played awful last year, and I just don't see how they can do worse. You know, it's kind of impossible for them to do worse and still be in the major leagues pitching at the level that they are. Also, Brad Brock was terrible with the Cubs, but then came back with the Mets, had a good couple months after that deadline DFA for the Cubs, and he went to New York. Lugo as well in Batanzas. I expect them to sort of provide insurance, provide a bridge to the guys like Diaz. So I have the Mets in second, and we're going to go straight to our number ones right now. My number one... The reigning champs, division champs, Atlanta Braves. You got Acuna, Alves. The signing of Ozuna replaces Donaldson right there. Consistent rotation with Fultonavich manning that head spot and an ace spot in the rotation. I don't see how the Atlanta Braves give up the division this year. Yeah, I'll make this one quick, but I think the Atlanta Braves won the division the last two years. They're going to do it again. Very good team. I think the best overall team in that division. And the biggest difference here is you look in the postseason, the division series last year, biggest struggle for them was the bullpen. They're bringing back Melanson, Will Smith, Shane Green, Luke Jackson. I, I like this pen a lot. I think they've bolstered it a bit this offseason, and it's going to make them a better team next year. 
I agree with you guys 100%. Um, gotta go with the Braves. Um, they have so many great young players, Ozzy Albies, Ronald Acuna Jr., and um, I like that they brought in Travis Darno as a catcher. He had a very good season last year, um, had a big game against the Yankees um, that highlighted uh, his season. But, um, yeah, definitely like the Braves' great rotation, um, and obviously they have all-stars at all positions. Yeah, that I agree with that. As I said earlier, I think we all think that the Braves are going to come out on top well, that's going to do it for our show this morning. Be- follow us on social media at On The Mound VIC on Instagram and Twitter. Again, thank you for joining us on The Mound. We'll be here next and every Saturday at 8 Eastern. Be sure to join us next week. Speaking of Atlanta Braves, we're going to have a special interview with Braves minor leaguer Mitch Calandra, as well as a preview of the revamped American League Central. Next up is Every Dude's Fantasy. Thank you for listening to On The Mound on VIC Radio.